0: Our sermon this morning is from Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not?
1: What is love? It's an age-old question, isn't it? We can define love in all sorts of ways because there are all sorts of loves. So we use the word love to talk about sports teams, dating, marriage, children, food, health. We use it flippantly to talk about trivial matters. And we use it seriously to communicate our deepest emotions. But in the midst of this huge category of defining love, have you ever wondered if there's Some greater standard of love, some higher love from which those loves originate. What, for instance, is the love of God? Because if God is love, then his love must be the standard for our loves, shouldn't it? What is the love of God? One theologian has taken a shot at a definition. You guys who are in the men's boot camp, will have heard this already this week. Wayne Grudem says that God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. I think he's right. So while we often think of love as taking what we might get out of someone or something, God's love is one that gives sacrificially of himself to others. But what does that look like? I think we get a pretty good idea of what that looks like in the passage Daniel has just read for us. So we're working our way, if you've been with us or if you're new, we're working our way through a study in the book of Exodus. Exodus is the historical account written by the prophet Moses to show how God led his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt to the land he promised to give them. And for the past two weeks, as we've recommenced our study after a summer break, we've seen God lead his people away from great triumph at the Red Sea into the wilderness, into hardship. We've seen him test his people to show them who he is and how they must trust him. And this morning, in what Daniel has just read, we come to the third of this trilogy of tests with our time in this brief passage, let's see two things this morning. First, the testing of the Lord. And second, the judgment of the Lord. First, the testing of the Lord. Look in verse 1 with me. Moses writes, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So as the great Willie Nelson once said, the Israelites are on the road again. They leave the, thank you to those who laughed, they leave the wilderness of sin. Remember that has nothing to do with our idea of sin. This is the proper name for this wilderness. And they've been amazingly supplied by manna and quail from heaven. And, and after a few stops along the way, which we don't see here, but we see in Numbers chapter 33, they do stop along the way a few times, and now they come to a region named Rephidim. They're approaching Mount Sinai, where they will be for the remainder of the book of Exodus. But for now, they pit stop in Rephidim. And much like Mara back in chapter 15, this resting place is missing an essential part of any good resting place. An essential part, in fact, of life itself. We see there, there is no water. So if you've been with us the past few weeks, this may sound familiar. And I think you might think... That Israel should have a good idea by now of what to do in this sort of situation. I mean, they've seen Yahweh, the, the personal name for their God, shown in your English translations as LORD, all caps. That's the, 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 the translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's God's personal name. They've seen Yahweh do incredible things to sustain them in the desert. Just think about it. He's changed bitter water to fresh water at Marah. He sent manna and quail in miraculous ways in the wilderness of sin. Israel has seen all of this, and so as they approach another crisis, we we should think they will know what to do at this point, right? Wrong. Verse 2. Therefore, because of what's happening, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. We've seen Israel grumble already in Exodus, but here this is a new term. Moses is bringing up, he says that they're quarreling. One scholar points out that this word has a sense of, even more than grumbling, perhaps a a one party being wronged by another party. So the Israelites are quarreling because they believe they have been wronged in a serious way by their deliverer, Moses. We see that in verse 3. As they grumble and they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children? And our livestock with thirst? We saw them grumbling last week, right? But this week we see yet again that they're grumbling while first and foremost that Moses is actually ultimately against Yahweh. Look at verse 2. Moses responds to the quarreling and says, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? In chapter 16, we saw Moses declare that their grumbling was not against him, but against Yahweh. Remember that? After all, it had been Yahweh who had brought them up out of Egypt. It had been Yahweh whose plan all along had been to deliver his people. It had been Yahweh who had sent Moses to save them. It had been Yahweh who had exercised amazing signs and wonders of judgment upon Egypt. But apparently now short time later, Israel has already forgotten that lesson. Moses reminds them yet again. He says, you aren't testing me. You're testing the Lord. It's a bit of a new angle on it, isn't it? Israel is, in fact, testing the Lord. We've seen Yahweh test his people in chapters 15 and 16, but we here we see that this testing is not just a one-way street. And while Yahweh's testing is the testing of a kind, gracious God on his weak, needy people, helping them to mature in their trust and dependence on him, Israel's testing of Yahweh is downright rebellion. It's a revolt. God's people are doubting his presence, his love, his very plan to save. And in doing so, they're placing themselves in authority over Yahweh himself. One author writes, they become the judge and God is in the dock. It's as if god has been placed in the defendant's chair to be questioned by the prosecution a holy god cross-examined by sinful people do you see how backward this is and yet it's exactly what god's people are doing testing him testing his, testing his his sovereignty his patience his grace his plan christian Do you test God? I'm not asking if you ever question God or or ask him to kind of explain what is going on in your life. I'm not asking if you ever cry out and say, God, what in the world are you doing? There is a humble way to plead with God in the midst of our confusion and fear. We see the psalmist doing it again and again and again. No, I'm asking if you test God if you stand in judgment over him. So Alec Mateer says about this passage, there is an element of challenge to God, demanding that he prove his worth all over again. If against all probabilities he gets us out of this mess, then we will consider believing. But in the meantime, we will suspend both our faith and our obedience. I wonder if you've ever seen that in your own heart. When God's plans and yours are different, which they often are, do you put your trust on hold until he earns it back? Another scholar says, how do we test God? By putting him on trial for not running the world the way we would like. And don't we so often do that, Christian? position ourselves as the judge over God and demand He come through for us in the way we call Him to. And then when He doesn't, aren't we tempted to withdraw, to give God the silent treatment, to hold out our faith until He sort of ups His game again? How lightly we treat God. How ignorant is our understanding of who is really in the judge's seat. Andrew read for us at the beginning of our service from Psalm 95, where the psalmist reflects on this account in Exodus 17. He writes, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Christian, do not harden your heart at the testing of the Lord. How do you respond to the testing of the Lord in your life? His testing is is for your good. But to test him back is futile and potentially deadly. To your church, seek to maintain a soft, moldable heart that responds humbly to Yahweh's loving correction and discipline. Tim Chester says, a hardened heart leads to ruin. When God provides in a manner that does not accord with your preferences or your timing, be careful. You will want to grumble, but instead take the opportunity to trust God rather than to test him. It's a good warning for us, family. If you harden your heart against the Lord's testing, your heart will begin to calcify And then when the bitterness that you harbor against the Lord just becomes too heavy to bear, it will split open your heart. So take care. Take care not to harbor resentment against the Lord for a test he's given you in your life. Not an easy one, a hard one. One you wish he would just take away. Do not harden your heart against the Lord for that test ask him about it plead for it to go away if it be his will plead for help in the midst of it but do not resent him if you see resentment and hardness building up in your heart against the lord repent face it dead on it might be in your marriage lord why have you given me this marriage It might be in your family, Lord, why have you let that child slip away? It might be even in this church. Wherever it is, do the hard work of turning away from bitterness, remembering that the testing of the Lord is for your good. There in verse 4, we see how much the situation escalates. This is the real deal, folks. This isn't Exodus 15 and 16 anymore. Now we're looking at outright mutiny. Moses is afraid. He turns to Yahweh and he cries, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. It's kind of like that cry of a desperate, fed up parent, but so much worse. God's people are about to kill God's deliverer. Who will step in? Who will save the day? Second and final point then, the judgment of the Lord. Look at verse 5, the judgment of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand, the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. So it seems like the Lord has some sort of plan, but to be frank, it, it sounds kind of ominous. I mean, what, what's the Lord up to? What's about to happen? We're, we're seeing this scene unfolding slowly. God's people are rising to this new height of rebellion, testing the Lord. Moses is ready to snap. Not for the, the last time. And now God tells him to take his staff and go on ahead of the people. What's going on, Lord? Verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, Yahweh says. I'm quoting Tim Chester again, but I love how in his book on Exodus he visualizes this scene. So he visualizes this scene as a courtroom drama. Here's what he says. The Israelites have put God on trial through their grumbling. And so the courtroom here is arranged. The representatives of Israel are on one side and God is on the rock on the other side. This is the case of Israel versus God. And in the middle is Moses with his staff, as it were, the judge. It's quite the image, isn't it? Things have come to a head. What will happen? Will God smite his people? Will Moses be the instrument to bring final vengeance down on them for their rebellion like he did with Pharaoh? I mean, they certainly deserve it for their treasonous unbelief. And notice that threatening element there. Do you see it? The the staff. It's the staff, the Lord says, with which Moses had struck the Nile. It's a tool Moses used to wield God's authority of judgment on his enemy, Pharaoh. So now the question is, this ominous setting Asks the question, will that same staff now be wielded with that same judgment against God's people? Remember who else had a hardened heart? Verse 6. The Lord says, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink." The instructions are simple, but the result is profound. Moses must take the staff and bring it crashing down in judgment on the rock. Simple enough, but do you remember where God is standing in this courtroom drama? He's standing on the rock. He's standing there as his people's covenant-keeping, self-existent God, Yahweh. And he's not exalting himself in triumph. He's not judging his people's waywardness. He's not showing them how terrible their rebellious deeds and and words have been. No, he's standing silent as a staff of judgment comes down on him. Moses, the weak leader of God's people, uses the symbol of God's authoritative power and judgment and brings it down not on Israel, not on those who deserved it, but on Israel's God. The judge is being judged, he's bearing the staff himself. And what happens? When that staff comes crashing down, does God respond in kind of terrifying fury and wrath? Is Moses sort of like instantly slain? Are God's people kind of vaporized on the spot for this ultimate act of rebellion? No. 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 Saving water comes flowing out from the rock. And God's people drink and are saved from death. Life-giving water for God's sinful people. Again, he provides, this time at his own expense. Church, we see here echoes of the very core of the gospel. This image here is a foreshadowing of a greater judgment that would come. Brad read it for us earlier from 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says that the Israelites all drank from the spiritual rock. We know that. The rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So this courtroom drama unfolding in Exodus 17 is just a teaser trailer for a greater courtroom drama epic that's to come. God's people had sinned against him. Everyone born continued in sin against him. You and I, friend, have sinned against him, each of us, by elevating ourselves as judge over him, deciding our view of what should happen in our life is better than his. But when we deserved his wrath against that rebellion, he sent his son. Jesus came as God's deliverer. But unlike Moses, he was not spared death. Moses was afraid of being killed by God's people, but Jesus came to be killed by God's people die in the place of sinners. When Jesus died, he died as the object of God's judgment. Jesus is like that rock receiving the crash of the staff. Jesus, the perfect man, willingly took the crash of God's judgment on himself so his people could be saved. When he was struck, his blood poured out like that water from that rock so that our death penalty could be revoked and we could drink the water of his salvation. It's like we sang just a few moments ago, Jesus was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. Here in Exodus, Yahweh says, I will stand and be struck for my people. And on the cross, he says, I have sent my son to stand, to be hung, to be struck so my people can drink of my free salvation. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Jesus is standing here as the perfect Israel who perfectly withstood all the testing of his own wilderness. you remember when Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days and never gave in, never tested the Lord back? Jesus is the perfect Israel who always obeyed his heavenly Father, and here he is taking the blow of the judge, the judgment staff of Yahweh down on himself. The same staff which had turned the Nile into blood brings all the guilt of God's people, of you and me, down on him. Church, this this is the kind of news that makes us feel both sick with the weight of our sin and unimaginably grateful at the weight of God's grace. The name of that place in Exodus was forever memorialized as Massa and Meribah. Two words meaning quarreling and testing. But friends, Massa and Meribah were not the end. There was another place called Calvary, and there Jesus bore God's final judgment for sinners. He died so that we can never wonder, like the Israelites do there in verse 7, we can never again wonder, is God with us or not? Because Jesus has come down as Emmanuel god with us he's promised never to leave us or forsake us like we said at the outset this is the grandest demonstration of the love of god the judgment of his son his giving of himself to others this is the gospel church if you're here with us and you're not a follower of Christ, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, we're so happy you're here, but this has a clear message for you. You must understand that the cross is not just an example for us to help us live better, more sacrificial lives. The cross is not just a historical account of an innocent man dying a gruesome death. Many other guys did that. The cross is judgment. The cross is the gavel of the judge coming crashing down on his son. Do you see how your sin deserves punishment? And do you see how that punishment will either come down on you or on Christ? Which will it be? Won't you turn to him today and see all your sin placed on him? Won't you repent and believe and be saved? You don't need to do anything. Only recognize you're unable to save yourself and turn to Christ, and you will be saved. If you have questions about that, we'd love to talk more. You can talk to me, you can talk to some of the musicians that were up here. We'd love to just talk to you about how God, through Christ, has saved miserable sinners like us. And, dear church, what a savior, right? I mean, we deserved wrath, we received grace. We deserve judgment, we receive pardon, we deserve despair, we receive hope, we deserve death, we receive heaven. You might know of that old hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. That rock is Christ. It's an old word, cleft, but it means he was split, killed for sinners so we might live. And now he reigns forever and will one day come back in triumphant victory. What a Savior. As we reflect on this passage and then go to the Lord's table, let me leave you with three questions to take home with you from this passage then. First, do you see how much God values justice and hates sin? I mean, maybe you've wondered at times, maybe you're wondering now, why God has to just take this so seriously. I mean, why couldn't he have just looked the other way and pardoned our sin? Just kind of swept it under the rug and pretended it wasn't there anymore. Why did it take the death of Jesus to atone for it? It just seems overboard, Lord. No. Sin is too serious for a perfect judge to ignore. Every sin must be dealt with. R.C. Sproul says sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Christian, is that how you view sin? Of course it is, in certain ways. Right? You watch the news. You know that there are sins that must be condemned and punished. But what about your sin? Is your sin that serious? Does your sin deserve God's wrath? Friend, God, the judge, knows the secrets of your heart. Do not think he takes your sin lightly. Second question, do you see how much God loves you? He gave his own son to satisfy his justice on your account. That's what it took to save you. And he's done it for you, Christian. I think when we, I know, when we diminish the importance and seriousness and gravity of sin, the cross just becomes this cliche token of Christianity. Christianity. But when we remember, when we see this rock struck with the, the judgment of the Lord in the same way that he struck Egypt, we see how serious our sin is, how corrupted our hearts are, how much we deserve God's great wrath, and that makes the cross then become this most glorious picture of grace and mercy. It's no longer something we just tattoo on our shoulders or hang around our necks. The cross is our life. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning and you struggle often to believe that God loves you. Maybe you find yourself regularly in this kind of never-ending cycle of kind of doing well enough day by day to feel that God approves of you and then failing. And just feeling you need to prove yourself you're a Christian to God all over again. And just doing it again week after week. If that's you, repent. That's not the gospel. That's man-made religion. The true gospel doesn't save you just as long as you measure up. The true gospel is sent by this loving, compassionate God who has set his redeeming affection on you while you were his enemy and gave his most precious possession to be judged for you. That's love. It's not something you have earned. It's nothing you can ever earn. It's something he's given. So delight in it. Rest in it. Meditate upon it. Don't give in to the lie that you need to earn it. And final question. Do you see why you can trust this God in your wilderness? This is now the third time we've seen God test his people and show them such great grace, even as they struggle to obey and believe. As we've mentioned before in past weeks, this wilderness wandering of God's people, which will last for 40 years, is a picture of our lives as Christians, isn't it? We've been saved from slavery to sin, and we have the promised land of heaven before us, but here in the meantime, we're in the wilderness. We're tested. We struggle. But as we do, We don't have a God who's unaware of what we're going through. We have a God who came as a man to be tempted like we are, tried like we are, tested like we are, who suffered, who agonized and longed for heaven like we do. We have a Savior who has gone before us and who is leading us through the wilderness until we reach home. We can trust him. Let's pray. Lord, this picture of judgment and grace in Exodus 17 takes our breath away. That you would be judged for sinners is just beyond our categories for mercy. So we ask, Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, you would capture our hearts yet again with the wonder of the gospel and that as we meditate upon it, we would grow in holiness and obedience and trust in the testing that you send. We thank you for how much you love us. Now you have promised to bring us all the way to the promised land. Be with us now as we sing